Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday night, and I want to do a history talk, Um, maybe a meta-history talk. This is being sponsored by Aria Elbaum, Aria and Heather Elbaum. It's uh, his grandfather's yard site. Uh, his father's father's yard site. And I asked him to write me a few words. And he said that it, my grandfather was born in 1912 in Krakow. So he's Polish. Uh, my mom was born in 1912 also. Um, his his father, in other words, that will be Ari's great-grandfather, originally from Lublin, was in Krakow learning the yeshiva and getting smicha. So that's interesting. Those were the, uh, quote-unquote, the golden years of Galicia, just before the First World War. It was the golden years of Galicia. Um, he had a difficult life. He didn't see his father for seven years of his childhood because his father went. So in other words, the great-grandfather was not seen by his son because the great-grandfather went to the U.S. seven years before the rest of the family to become a citizen, earn enough money to bring him over. That's the period before the First World War. I don't know if you know this. In the decade before the First World War, um, over 100,000 Jews, you can look it up, came here every year. Think about that. 100,000 Jews immigrated to the U.S. every year. That's a crazy number. My grandfather spent time, he says, in the yeshiva in Krakow. I wonder which one. The yeshiva in Krakow was uh, Yosef Engel, but there were a lot of yeshivas. But he couldn't continue his learning yeshiva in the U.S. because he had to go to work. That's true. And support his parents and his family throughout the, through the Depression. He met my grandmother at a Zionist club in the 30s. Isn't that interesting? Um, and was a lifelong supporter of Israel. He sadly never made to Israel. He died at the age of 56 at a heart, sudden heart attack. He never got to meet his daughters-in-law or grandchildren. And I, that's Ari Elbaum, named after him, was known as someone who was extremely scrupulous in business dealings, a kind-hearted, gentle man, a true Elbaum Shombro to Shom. So, <laughs> you have to say about a Jew, you know? He was distinguished. He was very scrupulous in his, in his business dealings. <laughs> like, uh, man by his dog. Anyway, to pay tribute to the memory, today, as I said before, was the art site. And he can certainly be proud of his children and grandchildren. I know them. <laughs> right. Uh, Howard, my goodness, is a straight arrow. Anyhow, um, this actually tied in with what I was thinking of. Because, you know, it's Rosh Hashanah time, Yom Kippur. You start to think of a bigger picture. Especially part of what you do is supposed to think about the matzah of Kalal Yisrael. You know, part of the time in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, you think about yourself naturally. Everybody thinks about their Dalin Almas. Me Yichya, me Almas, me Bekitzim, me Belo Bekitzim, me Yon, me Yosher. And you want for yourself and your family and all that kind of stuff. That's natural. But one also is supposed to sort of lift themselves a little bit higher than that. Uh, and think of the situation of the Jewish people per se, Kalal Yisrael, which not so many people do. Most people are atomized. That's the con- modern condition that the human being, and certainly in Western culture, is atomized and thinks in terms of individual pursuits. It's one of the problems nation-states have today, generating genuine patriotism uh, among their citizens, not in the context of extreme right or extreme left, 
uh, the middle. It's hard to get the middle uh, uh, rotors who are the majority, hard to get, you know, that kind of thinking of the claw over the prod because nobody wants to be a sucker. Uh, it's a very interesting subject. Did you, it's, it's just interesting in many ways, as I always argue, you know, this is my perspective, that when you look at history, you can sort of see the Yad Hashem in, in different sorts of ways. And uh, one of them has to do with the notion, as they say, of Klal Yisrael, that it's a feeling. And the feeling of being part of an, a, of an entity of a totality is a major part of being Jewish. Uh, a major part of, a, a major mitzvah, I may add. And there was a time, once upon a time, before the modern era, when all Jews felt themselves members of Klal Yisrael, and not as members of the country in which they lived, because they lived there under different conditions as a separate alien minority. Um, this was, in the Muslim countries, there were like a demi group, and in the Christian countries, there were a special class category. So a Jew living in France was not considered a Frenchman, and a Jew living in Germany was not considered a German, not by the Gentiles and not by the Jews. They're considered Jews, Jewish communities living in, with permission of the government, living in the particular territories in which they lived. This is very interesting. This changed at the time of the French Revolution and afterwards, when the Goyim insisted you have to change the way you feel, and instead of feeling that you're part of Claw Yisrael, you have to feel rather that you're part of France or Germany or England or this, that, and the other. Some countries push this harder. Some countries push this less hard. But Napoleon is famous for asking the people he got together, the Sanhedrin, as he called it, in 1808, you know, do you feel yourself French or do you feel yourself Jewish? You know, and of course they were scared of him. They said, oh, naturally we feel as a French, you know. But um, it's the first time such a question would have been asked. Do you think a king of France 100 years earlier would have said to the Jews, do you consider yourself French or do you consider yourself Jewish? Of course they say they consider themselves Jewish. You see what I'm saying? So the idea of, of how you identify in terms of your personal identity, um, which is a heavy thing, was something that underwent a rather uh, remarkable transformation among many, many Jews in the modern era. Matter of fact, uh, it's almost like a cliche that the German Jews are super patriotic for the Kaiser and all that sort of thing. You've heard those kind of speeches before. And uh, it's true. Now, how true is it? In other words, how far does it go? Uh, in, so I, I'm going to answer that. The, when the 1800s, which is not that long ago, started, so this push was on the Jews, broadly speaking throughout Western culture, to sort of redefine themselves uh, as members of the nation itself, even though the nation didn't 100% mean it and never regarded them as truly equal. But we demand of you that you sort of change the way you think about yourselves. And I would say most of you, certainly many, probably most in the West and, and in Germany uh, did that. So in other words, if you ask the German Jews, I'm a German, basically like I'm a German first and a Jew second, something like that. Uh, now, the Orthodox, not. Or sometimes much, much, much less so. Uh, there were those who felt that way, but much, much less. Uh, but the non-Orthodox, especially the whole idea of Reform Judaism, is to make the religious ritual conform to what I just said. So that as the Reform Movement famously said, that, you know, Berlin is our Jerusalem, or Washington, the guy said, is our Jerusalem, and all that sort of thing. And it was like trafe to advocate that the Jewish people are separate people, based on the concept that the Jews in the 19th century, in the West particularly, said, listen, if we're asking for civil rights, that means we're asking we're asking for uh, rights in the context 
of becoming full citizens in the country. And that means that we want, you know, full uh, uh, responsibilities uh, and to earn the right to be citizens in the country. And that means that just like the guy next to us totally feel themselves to be German or Swiss or Italian or whatever, so the Jews have to also. Uh, the Frum, it's a whole complicated story. I can't go into it right now, but the Frum were always divided. You know, how, how patriotic are they going to be in the country? Now, no Frum Jew is anti-patriotic. You get it? They always wanted the country to prosper. But in the question of whether I consider myself Jewish first or a German first or an Austrian or a Hungarian or something like that, that was a tricky business, okay? Because it was expected as a quid pro quo for the Jews getting civil rights, which they got slowly but surely and reluctantly over the course of the 19th century. Then in return, the Jews should say we identify with the national group. You get it? In Hungary, you know, the Hasidim had to say, like they do now in New York, they're faking everybody out. They said, we're going to have, you know, English studies. So they used to say in Hungary, you know, we're Hungarians and our chief language is Hungarian and Magyar and all the rest of it. And they thought that they thought that they could control that. But actually, over the course of time, when you get to the late 19th and particularly the early 20th century, you really did have a lot of people in Hungary, for example, who spoke Hungarian and not Yiddish. It's, 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 it's kind of interesting. I'm talking about Shomer Shabbos Jews, religious Jews. So it's a funny kind of uh, phenomenon. Uh, now, broadly speaking, the concept of Klai Israel took a big hit in the 1800s, and I would say the Jews basically fractionated, and this was reflected religiously in the rise of non-Orthodox uh, denominations of Jude Jewish religion, which never happened before. So the rise of uh, reform, particularly in conservative, as a, as a, as a variant of that, uh, was really quite remarkable, in that you have groups who basically, theologically, this is part of their theology. They 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 say we're not a se we're not a separate people. You understand? Um, if you ask the Reformed Jew in America or in Germany, how do you feel about poor Jews in Russia or in Turkey or Israel? They say, listen, we're co-religionists. See the word they say? We're not resembling this. We're co-religionists. We will give charity, but you want to do something? We would give charity to the suffering Goyim as well. You see? So no, they weren't even comfortable um, admitting that they're you know identifying with the Jewish side in some kind of ethnic basis or anything more than a co-religionist uh, type of way. Uh, you, you don't have no idea how popular this was in the middle and late 19th century. I remember there's a book about uh, old Baltimore and a guy who was the head of the reform thing, the, the charity committee, even when they got the Jewish charities annual banquet together, he said, we're not here together as Israelites. We're here as men, you know, as baloney. But that's the way... They felt they had to talk about themselves. Now, uh, it didn't help. And for various reasons, which are too complicated to go into right now, it actually brought upon the modern rise of anti-Semitism, which means a movement in which you're opposed to Jews, not because of the religious beliefs, because after all, the Jews I'm talking about, let's say, for example, the Reform, but, and even more the secular Jews, which is a very large number in, in Central and Western Europe, uh, the secular Jews, they didn't even identify as Jewish. But nevertheless, people didn't like them for a whole bunch of reasons. And so the result is that there arose a movement called anti-Semitism right after the Jews got civil rights in 1870 in Germany. That's when you have the rise, it's remarkable, of the anti-Semitic movement, 1872 or three. Uh, and as you know, it grew and grew and became Hitler. Uh, 70 years from, you know, actually 60 years from the time the Jews got Civil rights in Germany to the rise of Hitler, 1870, 18 to 1933. So um, 
that you know hold a double hoop, and what 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 you find is the movement of anti-Semitism said we're not against the Jews because of their religion because most Jews don't even believe their religion, uh, but we're against the Jews because of their race. You know they use the word race. You know you could call it nowadays ethnicity, call it whatever you want, but you know the Jews constitute a separate race, and they have certain characteristics and features. And the long and the short of it is they're not part of us. And they're taking advantage of us and so forth and so on. And uh, this really resulted in a long chain of small, you know, uh, what's the right words? I don't want to say uprising because that sounds like too much. But small scale uh, criticism and attacks on individual Jews or Jewish ideas or Jewish people. It's scary because it's starting to be like that in America. If I, if I understand what's going on, you look on one of these websites, you know, Yeshi World or whatever, every day is another attack on somebody in New York. Every day is another attack going on, you know, in L.A., in this place, in that place. Didn't used to be like that, okay? And around the world also, in London and Paris and so forth and so on. It's a whole bunch of little, you know, little uh, uh, flare-ups. It's not a giant thing. It's, it's a whole bunch of little things. And uh, it's pretty scary, okay? So you see the recrudescence of anti-Semitism in the way that it was in the late 19th century in Europe. So it's ironic. On the formal legal level, the Jews got complete and total civil rights. And on the formal legal level, those were never withdrawn. And on the formal legal level, Jews could vote and had protection by the state. And if anybody harmed them, they could call the police and get the cops on them and, and go to the courts. That is all true. But on the Hamon Am level, their position deteriorated. That we know that the 20th century saw unprecedented violence on the Jews. Not only Hitler, of course, that's the big one. But remember, the Ukrainians killed 100,000 Jews in, in 1920, and then tens of thousands were killed in this place and that place. It's pretty bad. <laughs> you know, it's pretty bad. Now, the interesting thing is, this coincides with the fractionation of the idea of Kali Yisrael. It seems to me, speaking from a religious perspective, that as long as the Jews held this idea of Kali Yisrael, although they had no civil rights, there was no Hitlerism out there. In other words, there was what you called the old-fashioned rishus, the low-level uh, legal discrimination and persecution against the Jews in terms of ghettos and things of that nature. But, uh, but there wasn't the kind of business with, let's kill the Jews. Uh, that was Lobo B'Cheshmon. Even the viciously anti-Jewish countries like Russia, the, I remember the Tsar Russia said, if it was possible to kill all Jews, no, but of course, that's not possible. Now it's Alexander III, who was a mom's and a half. You know, he was a real piece of work. But even by him, lo yitokhan, that somebody would do a Haman and go mamsh and kill the Jews. So, you know, or or undertake to do that. You know, mitaf, minariyaz, kintaf, noshem. That's a 20th century thing, my friends. And uh, it rises, it, it, it comes with a modern anti-Semitic movement. Hitler wasn't the first idea to come up with that idea, but of course he's the one who, who put it into effect. But there was a whole um, bunch of predecessors. There used to be a, a Professor Moss. I forget his name. Is it Werner Moss or something like that? wrote about the Germany special way or the German Zonderweg or something like that. I remember I had to read it in college. And, you know, he has all, he did his homework and he did all these types of pre-Hitler type Hitlers they're running around in German culture and in other cultures as well. And this is after the Jews got the civil rights. But it is also, and the point I wanted to make is, after the Jews abandoned 
the model of Klai Yisrael that, you know, they believe themselves as part of an entity. Now, it sounds like a little thing to us, but it's actually, uh, my point is, it's quite big. And I derive from this, and as long as the Jews felt an, a, a, a sort of basic actus among each other, so I don't care what kind of a Jew you are, but we're all members of the same group, um, we were protected, impervious, menashamayim, against these kind of rises of Hitler's, which could have happened in any century earlier than that. There was nothing to prevent that from happening. You only see it was a divine providence that that blocked that. It was Dafka in the 20th century that this popped up, or the late 19th century has its origins, and that is exactly the time when the Humpty Dumpty fell apart, when the idea of Kalei shattered. And indeed, you find, particularly in the West, may I say, particularly in Germany and Central Europe, the notion that, as Sam Sreifel Hirsch put it, Orthodox Reform is two different religions. <clears throat> is uh, two different religions. In Hungary, the Frum made it that they talk to a separate religion. Now, they had their reasons, of course, <coughs> but the fact that we're holding by that is pretty sad. You get it? Uh, and as a result, the Haredi mentality became one uh, to a large measure on separatism, and it still is. Now, I again, I know there are reasons for it, and I fully understand that. And, uh, you know, you might say it's historical necessity or not. That could be debated. That could be debated. And that's where Rav Cook would, would disagree. But the way it's worked out is, as I said before, that the Haredi world, you know, and has, has gone its way. I'll oversimplify and say the Haredi have gone to the right and the Nafram have gone increasingly to the left. Because the Nafram certainly are going ever more increasingly to the left. But this is the opposite of what Hashem wants. Which is a fraction of the of the claw, with nothing holding the middle together. What Hashem wants, and I've said this many times in the podcast, and you get it from Masilzi um, Sharm and other places, is that there should be one continuum with a right, a left, and a center. I'll say it again: with a right and a left and a center, including the Bali Avera, but in such a relationship that the Bali Avera looked to the Bali Mitzvah and they said they're the ones doing the right thing. You know, we we've talked about that. You can look it up in in the chapter of Hasidus in Masil Sisharm. He's not the only place where the Masil Sisharm is one who popularizes and synthesizes, you know, the, the writings of others before them. Uh, now, in the teeth of this uh, centrifugal tendency, and the centrifugal tendency is the most pronounced in the modern era, as far as I can see. Today, you know, it's a cliche already to say we're going through a second Holocaust. Everybody knows that the intermarriage is going at, 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 at crazy, and rove Jews, certainly in America and around the world, are marrying out. And most of those who are marrying out, their kids ain't, you know, uh, uh, part of Kalei Period. And I mean, halachically. And they don't want to be. I don't blame them. And the result pretty terrible. Uh, increasing, increasingly, the, the Pirud predominates over the Ichud, and institutions that used to cater to why, uh, uh, you know, a constituency now under attack. We have now the sexual revolution, you have this kind of revolution, that kind of, all the cultural revolutions, all the woke stuff, and the result is that's tearing apart more and more. The way I see it, the more, more it tears apart, the more powerful the centrifugal tendencies from within the Jewish people themselves, because nobody's making us do this, we're doing this to ourselves, the greater the danger and the greater increase in the anti-Semitism. When you have the opposite, when you have Jews able to overcome these differences, and it's easier said than done, right? It's easier said than done, 
um, then it looks to me like um, you see things get better for Israel, for Jews, and anti-Semitism goes down one way or another. Because the Rabbanu Shalom runs the world, and he's always got a lot of balls in play. And right now, for example, at this very moment as I'm speaking, it's possible, I don't think so, but it's possible that Iran could explode and the government could be overthrown by all these people that are angry about the hijab and the shaitals and everything in Iran. Now, I don't say it's going to happen, but I'm just trying to show you that if the good Lord wanted it to happen, he could make it, the, 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 the materials are there, that he can make that whole problem of Iran go away. You understand? Go away. But we're not zilcha that that should happen. You see? Because we keep up the period and we keep up the centrifugal tendencies. To counter the centrifugal tendencies, you know what I mean, centrifugal means it pulls it apart. So you need the centripetal, and the trick with holding the Jewish people together is to make sure that the centripetal is more powerful than the centrifugal. Uh, it's easier said than done, because today, in uh, the beginning of the year, Tavshin, uh, Pei Gimel, the Kalah is really separate, because the Frum live by the Frum, the non-Frum live by the non-Frum, and basically have nothing to do with each other, you know, to be perfectly honest. They live two different zones. You understand? They're two different zones. They may be biologically connected, but increasingly, that's it. And, uh, that, you know, the, the old-fashioned type of person who's, uh, you know, a Zionist or something like that is disappearing under the acid of political correctness. And, you know, pretty soon you're going to see the only people in front of Israel are the Datim and the Haredim. So it's, it's kind of weird. Uh, I don't say that's a good tendency. It's not. But that's the way it looks like to me. Uh, and I imagine to you. Now, uh, what's in the centripetal side? What's the opposite? They're pulling things together. So, as I point out several times, with all of its flaws, with all of its flaws, the Zionist movement arose as a centripetal reaction to the centrifugal tendencies I just described. Now, Herzl was the opposite of Frum, uh, and he was coming from the point of view that the Jews need a country, quote-unquote, to run away to, or better yet, to be there before anything happens. And he was right about that, because the 20th century saw the rise of Hitler and other stuff like that. Plus, even without a Hitler, it's the, the, the uh, how should I put it, the assimilatory tendencies, the centrifugal tendencies of the Western culture, in which the Jews are minority in the Western culture, was so powerful that you need a Jewish state just to have a place where Jews can marry other Jews and be a concentration of Jews in and of itself. Now, uh, and he was wise enough to see that. You understand? Know, Daddy saw. Now, um, the, as I've said many times, Herzl was uh, a journalist and a faker. I mean a faker in the good sense. I don't mean a faker in the bad sense. In other words, he said, let's pretend, let's set up something which which the, will make a Zionist movement with a Congress and with members from all different countries and it'll look like Claw Israel. Right? And he did do it. And amazingly, the guy took him seriously from day one. Uh, I've, I've made this point many times. Uh, you know, Herzl really was faking in the sense he didn't really represent anybody except a few people who felt like him. Mama Shafu. Uh, Zionism, per se, never was a mass movement. Not not really, if you want to get down to the historical details. There's always a small minority, uh, which is just interesting. But the guy didn't know that. And they didn't see it that way. And within a few years, he started in 1897, within a few years, England took him seriously enough that the British offered him from the Mutaganda. You know? Think about that. They offered this guy, who really represented nobody, 
But it looked like he represented the Jewish people, and the guy wanted to think for their own reasons that the Jewish people are a united group, and they hang together, maybe because they believe the protocols of Zion, who knows why, and the British government offered them a, 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 a piece of the world, a Karka territory. That was in the wrong place, and it was again, that it didn't work out, and so forth. But it's just extraordinary that he faked it so successfully. And 10 years later, or 13 years later, uh, they actually offered, you know, the British offered him Eretz Yisrael as the Balfour Declaration in 1917. Again, to whom? To this group called the Zionists, who didn't see, who, you know, who really didn't represent anybody, but they faked it out successfully that they looked like they represented Jewish people. And again, the guy in the great nations of the world took them at their word and treated them that way. Now, that represents, among other things, a centripetal reaction against the centrifugal tendencies for everything to fall apart and the Jews to disintegrate and just in, disappear through intermarriage. That is what happened. Uh, the, uh, you know, Zionist movement wasn't from, they had a, but I want to tell you something. God has a funny way of operating. Listen closely to what I'm about to say. Uh, Herzl wasn't from the opposite. The opposite, I repeat. Uh, Achad Am was worse than Herzl. And so forth and so on. You know, the, the big mockers of the original political Zionist movement, Chaim Weizmann, I mean, they were all anti-from. So, theoretically, the group that should have hooked up with them was the Reform. You get it? Notice from a logic point of view, here comes a guy like Herzl and Chaim Weizmann and so forth. They say, listen, we want to set up in Eretz Yisrael a modern Jewish state, not this old-fashioned religious junk, a modern Jewish state that will have a modern Jewish culture and it'll be the equivalent of a, a European culture, a Western culture, but it'll be completely secular. You know, they're not going to keep Shabbos publicly. They're not going to keep kosher or anything because we're past that. You get it? The old-fashioned guys believe in that stuff, but we don't believe in that stuff. We're secular. We're we're modern educated. We know better. We know the you know the Bible's uh, is a made up book, and so on and so forth. So um, reform should have been the one that to, would would have fit like a glove. Uh, you understand? It would have fit like a glove, and they wouldn't have made any trouble about the higher bias. The base of Mish, they don't believe in nothing anyway. In other words, they don't they don't want to restore a temple. I mean, they're officially opposed to that. They don't want carbonus and things like that. So it would have been very good. Very good match, you see? Be a modern, secular state, the way the Europeans had modern, secular states. Um, and yet, because of this identity thing that I said before, by the time Herzl came along in the 1890s, the Western Jews, the Reformed Jews particularly, so viewed their own personal identity that any kind of identification with any kind of Jewish groups outside their country was considered to be treason to their own country. This is something they came up with on their own. It's a sign of their own self lack of self-confidence. And therefore, the Reform Movement declared ideological war in Zionism from day one. And I see that as Yad Hashem, because that made it that the Zionist Movement, which was led by secular Jews, and may I say, had to be led by secular Jews, because there's no way from Jews would get any kind of traction with the European powers. Don't fool yourselves. None of these British guys, French guys, and German and all the rest of it would be impressed with an Orthodox Jew. That's not the way it went. Uh, that's not the way it went. But a non-from Jew, they would be impressed with if he could pull it off. And as you know, Herzl was able to pull off, Chaim Weizmann was able to pull off, and so were some of the others. That's just a historic fact. So, the Bunchal made it that this group, which eventually would get back Eretz Yisrael in some form or another, would be led by 
these non-from guys, but they would not have an, a large non-from backing in terms of religion. The, the, the so-called liberal Judaism, Reform Judaism specifically in its various places, and uh, most notably in Germany and in the USA, uh, totally and, and, and viciously, I mean, you know, uh, strongly, radically opposed the idea of Zionism. The Jews are not a national group. They always repeat it over and over again. They're not a nation or anything. They don't want their own country. The Jews are perfectly happy in America. The Jews are perfectly happy in Germany. And to say otherwise is like treason to their uh, national countries and so on and so forth. So it's very interesting. So Herzl, this is literally true I'm about to say, from day one had nowhere to go but to the front. And the same thing was true even of Weizmann later on, even though he hated it. So that's the Mizrahi movement, you understand? No, he had nowhere to go. If he wanted to get large numbers of any sort, any kind of religious backing whatsoever, it had to be from the Orthodox. And believe you me, Herzl and Weizmann and the other guys held their nose. And they did it, Weizmann in particular. Okay, because Weizmann came from a firm family and he rebelled against it. He was a son of Pirish, if you know who he was. Um, he's, he's actually uh, from Ariel Bam's, uh, you know, the, the family comes from their motto in, in Belarus. And um, uh, he really held their nose about it, but he had no choice but to cooperate with the uh, Frum. And therefore, as Israel slowly but surely came to be under the British mandate, after 1917, 1918, when it came under England, uh, you had to have a chief rabbi like Rav Cook. You had to have a basin system that was set up by the British in 1920. I just spoke about that in my uh, lecture series this past summer. And um, the long and the short of it is, the Jewish religious part in Zionism was a firm one, was an Orthodox one. There were fights between whether it should be Mizrahi or good. I get, I understand that, but I'm just saying, even at its most left-wing, it was all orthodox, which is why you have uh, Ad Hayom Azeh, the uh, interesting anomaly. It is, it was a modern, uh, secular country. The majority is uh, secular. But, uh, you know, the Rabbanut still controls marriage and divorce, so to speak. You, know, you can't get divorced, except through a basin with a get. You can't get married. Uh, and, you know, there are gunas running around and all that sort of thing. And you, know, you know what I'm talking about. And it's kind of interesting because it's the year 2022, you know? And it's in the 21st century, not even the 20th. And it's still going on like that. And it drives the non from crazy. I saw, uh, who was it? The head of the Labor Party or something. She promises that if she gets elected, they win party, they'll, they'll, they'll turn on the public transportation in Tel Aviv on Shabbos. So, till this day, you don't have, at the official level, you know, the buses or whatever running, even in Tel Aviv, which is a secular place. So... Um, the good Lord made it, you know, this is part of his jokes, the good Lord made it that this new state that would arise, led by the uh, the non-from and the anti-from, would end up, uh, for various reasons of political uh, circumstances and convenience, uh, in a situation in which they need the from parties, as it were, and have to make concessions, and Israel turns out to be a place where you have a lot of from stuff going on. It, it, in other words, it's, it's kind of strange. Now, Everything I just said is a function, if you think about it in a large way, of the Great Revolution of the last 200 years, 250 years, and all the, as, as I see it, the Great Revolution in technology the last 200 years is in communications, physical communications and, you know, uh, uh, oral communication, you know, I mean, uh, message communications. The uh, We have now the, the steamboat and the airplane 
and all that kind of stuff so you can run around the world in 10 minutes. And now we've been a continuous uh, progress uh, from the telegraph, you know what I mean, to the telephone, to now the iPhones, you know, and uh, which is quite remarkable. And this has brought mankind and knowledge of mankind together in an unprecedented way. For thousands of years, you never had anything like this. And uh, I would even say that the human race, and certainly the USA, is struggling under the impact of, uh, you know, Facebook and TikTok and all this other junk uh, because they're not, they just don't know exactly how to handle it. Imagine Trump, for example, without, you know, without the Facebook and all that, uh, or whatever it is that he uses. So, I'm talking about when he was president. So uh, the, the information revolution, they call it sometimes, communications revolution. And I'm saying this because in the teeth of the modern era, when, again, you know, I, this is just me looking at how I see God running the world. He says, in the teeth of the modern era, when the Jews have become increasingly fractionated and separated from one another, the technological means, the technology of people communicating with each other has unbelievably intensified and become easier than ever before. Uh, that doesn't mean today that they're from and they're not from or, you know, communicating with each other, but the possibilities are there in unprecedented ways, which is kind of interesting. And, uh, as I said before, you couldn't imagine, for example, a Zionist movement or anything like that without the fact that Herzl came after the steamboat and the telegraph and the telephone and all the modern communications. He, he, he started in the modern era. So it's possible for Jews to get on a train in, in Russia and come to a, a, a Zionist Congress in Switzerland without too much trouble. It was pretty easy to do. And it was possible for thousands, if they wanted, and hundreds of thousands of Jews, if they wanted to make Aliyah, already in the first part of the 20th century, to do so on ships and boats and eventually airplanes in ways that were just inconceivable once upon a time. Uh, the other day, I think, was the anniversary of, somebody told me it was the anniversary of the earthquake in Sfas, I believe. And I had a great-great-great-great-grandfather, something like that, my mother's ancestor, whose name was Isaac Goldis. And we have a, a family a tree thing, you know, Yichus brief. And... He was like some super from dude way back when in the early 1800s. Uh, I could go into details about him. And he was one of those really religious guys that went made Aliyah to Israel back, you know, when you had to go on horseback and, and walk. And only a super from, I guess, fanatic would do something like that. And, of course, he got to Tzvaz and then he died in the earthquake there. I mean, that's the story. But uh, it was very hard to get there to Israel. You know, very difficult. Uh, not now, not not since uh, the, the time of the rise of the Zionist movement. Uh, you get on a ship and you're there. You understand? It's, it's, it's much easier. And eventually you get on a plane and you're there. Now, therefore, I'm just saying the rise of modern Jewish nationalism and turning into something effective was unimaginable before the rise of modern technology. So the good Lord had to invent all this modern shortening of distances and things like that in order to enable Jews to come back and, and, and rebuild and retake Eretz Yisrael. Uh, as you know, the Aguda started about 15 years after Herzl, he was dead already, as a reaction to Zionism because they say, hey, these guys are passing themselves as representing the Jewish people, call Yisrael, and that's not true, we do. We the Frum do. And they tried to make a Frum organization, which they would claim would represent the true masses of the Jews, which wasn't exactly true either, but, you know, that's what politics is. 
you shoot the bull to a certain degree. And the Agoda never really took off uh, because the main leaders in that organization were like Rosh Hashiva types and whatever. And you're not, if you're Rosh Hashiva, sort of like a Chaim Brisker, that sort, you're not really interested in organizational buildup and details. Uh, you understand you need, whereas the Zionist leaders, that's that's what their main caucus were into. Uh, a, a big rabbi, Rosh Hashiva, that sort of thing, is going to be interested in his you know, on yeshiva, in his uh, community, in his chevra, and mostly in building up learning, uh, if, rather than following a specific program. Ad Kedekach, that today in the state of Israel, the Agoda, for example, and similar parties, you know, Deglator, whatever they call it, they change the name every 10 minutes, uh, don't really have a political program. The political program consists of getting money in order to build up more learning. I mean, that's what it is, right? Agree? It's all about getting money, not for the sake of getting money, but for the sake of build, you know paying for chinuch, to increase the chinuch. What's the plan once you build the chinuch? The plan is to build more chinuch. <laughs> you get it? They don't have a political program. They don't have an economic program. The program is to build up the, the, the yeshiva world more and more. And that's what it is. That's the natural dynamic within the firm world. So it's not a political dynamic, you see? The politics is secondary to supporting the, you know, the... Uh, I guess, the subsidization of and growth of Torah institutions. That's a, quite an insight I just made. Um, hold on for a second. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Uh, now, here's the funny part. So the Agoda, per se, even though it started in the 20th century, not even the 19th, in 1912, right? And it started at a time when, you know, modern communications were were certainly far more developed than they've been for thousands of years. Uh, and the Aguda was able, in some degree, to use modern communications in some degree. The big technological um, you know, equivalent in 1912 and 1920s was the newspaper. You get it? You know, that's how you uh, spread your word. And then, you know, Aguda started like Aguda-type newspapers. But as I said... For a whole bunch of reasons, it never really took off as an organization. You could possibly blame it on Hitler, but I don't, I don't think that's the reason. I think the reasons are internal, as I said before, and internal to the culture, the, the Haredi culture. Um, so if we ask ourselves today, in the Agoda world or the Haredi world or whatever you want to call it, that kind of thing, uh, so what is it that holds everyone together? Or what do they all have in common? So, I mean, they do have the same set of beliefs, that's true. But I'll tell you where I'm going with this. It just struck me. I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, you know, the Dafyomi, which is spread and become hard, hardwired into uh, the culture, not only Aguda, but, you know, it's become the, the hallmark of that. And this was something that started the, at the second Aguda convention. Because Mayor Shapiro, you know, the Lublin Rao, said this is the second Aguda convention in Vienna, I believe, right? I think that's when he started in 1923. That everybody's holding on the same Daf, so to speak. Now, it took 100 years for it to really take off, but here we are 100 years later, and for the last, you know, 40, 50 years, it's really been taking off. And today, as you all know, there's a whole world uh, with tens of thousands of listeners, that's a lot, in uh, in different Dafyomis, whether in English or in Israel, Israel, they have the Israeli ones, and I'm sure in other countries they have the other ones. And uh, I don't want to over-stress this, but it's really kind of interesting that... What holds a lot of people together 
you know, is the fact well they're all learning the same daf, as it were. Uh, I've seen myself people who have kind of changed as a result of being in the daf yomi. Now I myself don't do it, but I know. But uh, that doesn't mean I'm I'm telling people not to do it. Uh, and it's it's a centripetal uh, uh, dynamic. It's a centripetal kind of phenomenon in a world where everything is centrifugal. It's something that holds people kind of on the same page uh, in a way that's uh, very interesting because it's based on modern communications. It's flourishing today because of the art scroll and the Steinsalz and especially, you know, the online guys that are giving the Dafyomis and they're all popping up all the time and this one's better than that one and, and it, that's all good, you see? Uh, and pretty soon they'll have it spoon-fed even more and it's, it's eventually going to spread, I'm sure, to the Yishalmi. And, you know, they, 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 the possibilities are, so to speak, endless. Now, this is not a political thing. This is a cultural thing. But my contention is that the politics, the way God runs the world is the politics follows the culture. That's my argument, my thesis. Uh, now, of course, this is just my opinion. But I know a little bit of history. And when you look at it and you look for patterns, it strikes me that when you see intensifications of coming together within cultures, it usually has a good spin on the outside, on the, in the political realm. Now, the problem, of course, is it's all internal. Everything but the Dafyomi is in the quote-unquote from world. It's in the from world. Uh, it hasn't really affected the non-from world. Well, to a time, it's not true. To a very small degree, and nobody knows the future, I see when I go online, you see that there are other groups out there um, Let's put it this way. I don't know if they have exactly something like this, but they have something along the lines of a reformed Dafyomi. I mean, I know it's not exactly like that, but you know what I'm saying. Reformed Dafyomi, a gay Dafyomi, a this Dafyomi, a that Dafyomi. I'm, I, I, I'm quite serious about all these sorts of things. We live in strange times. There are people who cuss out the Gemara, all the rest of it, but they're all into learning. Who knows what the future course of the 21st century is? Maybe this kind of thing will spread. I mean, you don't know God's plan um, I can't see it surmounting the differences that are so huge between the different sections of Kali Yisrael, which is just something sad. Uh, but I would like to be wrong. And uh, it's intriguing. And it's something that's spreading. And, uh, you know, it cannot be that the phenomenon of art scroll, which is just meant for... Uh, Yeshiva Shabalabat, that was the target audience. Yeshiva type Balabatim, who are, you know, no longer holding and learning for whatever reason. Uh, it certainly is spread beyond that population. Correct? Uh, and once something is in English, or whatever other language it is, if it's done well, uh, you, you sort of don't own it anymore. You can't control it. And so you can have, as I said before, somebody have a reform Dafiyomi, a reconstruction of Dafiyomi, you can have whatever you call it. I know they don't they don't use exactly the model of Dafiyomi. I understand that, but it's it's uh but but it's the engagement with the Talmud, let's put it that way. Um, who knows where this can lead? Um, who knows where it can lead? But we don't know. Let's put it this way. But we know the consequences of the opposite when things are more centrifugal and they fall apart more. Then of course. The results are disastrous. So you look at the state of Israel today, or or the state of Israel in America or elsewhere, and you see the great uh, dangers that are constantly hovering over them. 
uh, you'll wonder what is it that can prevent these things from ever succeeding in their nefarious, uh, you know, objectives. And from a religious perspective, uh, it seems to me that, that anything centripetal, uh, you know, is, is, is something that helps. How it plays out that you leave Tashem. Like I said before, whether or not there'll be a, a, a an uprising in Iran, whether or not the guy in North Korea will have some kind of, you know, brain something, whether or not Putin and uh, Zelensky will do this or that. I mean, you know, who knows? We don't know what'll happen with China tomorrow. Will China attack America? Will China attack Japan? <laughs> will Japan attack China? You, you know, the, 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 um, the what, do you, what do you, what's the word? The factors are so, you know, multifaceted and so numerous that, you know, it, 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 it <laughs> defy, defies, uh, you know, the ability to, to, let's put it this way, the movie is progressing and we're going to see how the movie, you know, turns out or it's an endless movie. But as far as our part is concerned, anything that, that helps in the, uh, in the centripetal is a, a very big mitzvah. And so... I throw this out there because Yom Kippur is here, and like I said before, we think about our own selves, which is normal, but it's also good to give a few minutes to think about the state of Kali Yisrael, and to daven on behalf that, you know, things should be more united, and from our perspective that the other people should see the light, you know, they daven from their perspective, and that's and that's how these things, uh, you know, progress. I think it's considered a very big mitzvah in Shemayim if a person thinks along these lines, even if you don't get it exactly right. Anyway, that's just something I wanted to share with you at this time of the year. Thanks a lot to Ari and Heather Elbaum, and I uh, hope it'll be a, a, the neshama of Ari's grandfather, Howard's father, should have an aliyah. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.